My name is Stuart Parker, and this is my show, Cocktail Hour. Uh, joining me on the line from not very far away at all in uh, New Westminster, British Columbia, uh, is uh, Sam Schechter, a uh, longtime friend of the old show, uh, now guest on the new show. Uh, Sam is um, a former uh, high-ranking New Democrat courtier, former NDP candidate, and is now the chair of communications at uh Douglas College. Uh, so, first of all, welcome back, Sam. Thank you, Stuart. Always a pleasure to be with you on the show. So, what we have, uh, so uh, it's cocktail hour, but we haven't actually selected a cocktail. We've sele- uh, Sam selected a wine, um, Cote de Rhone, uh, Gigal. Um, uh, my bottle is 2018. When's yours from? 2017. Uh, but that's because I buy it by the case and I age it. Right. Little because it's um, it uh, doesn't need to age forever like uh, Bordeaux. Rhone wines only need a, li- a few extra years, in my opinion, to to peak. So, um, what makes this um, a, a favorite uh, of uh, of that kind of wine? Well, the the when when one my wine journey begins with British Columbia wines, going to the vineyards in BC going to the wineries and uh, experiencing the, the grapes where they're grown. And that's a wonderful uh, hobby. My wife and I both enjoy it. We're both certified wine stewards. One of BC's best grapes is Syrah. And the natural home of Syrah is the Rhone. And so what I wanted to do was explore the Rhone. And my wife and I did honeymoon there and try and find a red Rhone wine that we liked that was not too expensive, that we could have on a regular basis, that didn't need a ton of age. Uh, this is a five-year-old bottle. For, as far as I'm concerned, that's old enough for Cote de Rhone. And um, so this really checked off a lot of those boxes. But also, I really enjoy the, the flavor profile of this wine. Uh, it offers uh, really attractive dark fruit notes, uh, a little bit of clove as a result of oak influence. And uh, really doesn't have too bitter a tannin. The acidity is really nicely balanced. I think that Egal has uh, achieved a, a really lovely wine for the price point uh, that I can have with a huge range of meals and uh, be quite happy with. So that's why I buy this one by the by the case. Yeah. So I uh, certainly my wine journey began the same place yours did. It just hasn't moved on. Uh, because, you know, the cultural experience of going up to the Okanagan, uh, of course, while many of my friends have discovered that they're global cosmopolitan people, my journey has been to discover that I mistook myself for such a person and that I'm actually a profoundly parochial individual who um, has highly nationalistic tastes in food, as it turns out. Uh, one of the things I'm hoping we'll be able to feature on the program are uh some uh, later along, it seems like gin is the favorite hard liquor on the show. And it is interesting to see probably more so than wine or anything else, Canadians showing confidence in their own gin styles. The Tofino cedar gin is superb, that sort of thing. But I wonder, like, when we think about, um, you know, we have a set of expectations of France of the wines there. In a way, they're the normative wine that we compare all wine against. If you were in the Rhone 
and somebody asked you about um, the sort of the parochial wines of BC, how would you overall characterize the scene? Yeah, I think that, it, and I've, I've had these conversations and Syrah is where I start the conversation because it's, it's a real flagship red in BC. A lot of people grow it and grow it very well. Uh, I'll give a plug for Le Vieux Pen produces fantastic Syrah at a few different price points. And the real achievement of Syrah in BC is how well it integrates with what the French call the terroir, which is the land and the plants and everything in the natural environment that contributes to the flavor profile of the wine. And so on the black sage bench near Oliver, uh, the, the flavors of sage are integrated into the wine in a lovely herbaceous way. The, the fact that cherry trees were planted all over the Okanagan Valley influences the terroir, cherry notes come out. But I think the great achievement for uh, Le Vieux Pen is that lavender really leads the flavor profile in a very attractive way, along with crushed violets. And in the Rhone, crushed violets is seen as a very desirable flavor to achieve in the wine. And I love it. And so I think that's where I think the discussion needs to be if you are trying to communicate what BC wine achieves that the French could appreciate. Uh, another on the white side, I think BC Chardonnay achieves a lot, but uh, I don't think the French would appreciate the description of, well, we model our Chardonnay on California uh, because California produces fantastic Chardonnay. And we look at it and say, you know, the only thing that people really don't like about California Chardonnay is how oaky it is. How we just dial back the oak a little bit and we otherwise, you know, bring out a lot of the, the tropical fruits sometimes or, or apple. You got a lot of green apple because what used to grow in the Okanagan, right? It's influencing the terroir, all that apple cultivation, those apple pear notes, you know, the use of oak bring out a little bit of honey, butternut scotch, and so I, I don't know if, if the French would jump up and down for that description, um, but that's what it is. I, I absolutely, um, I, you know, I was uh, I was not a big uh, Chardonnay drinker from California. The Chardonnays I drank from were from Australia, and I liked them, but I had the same problem with them. And I was, yeah, when I started going after the Okanagan, it's like, oh, people are trying to rediscover the flavor of the actual grape here with the these unoaked Chardonnays. That's a that is a cool project that folks in the Okanagan have taken on. Yeah, they, and they're not always unoaked, but sometimes they're less oaked. Where instead of like Rombauer in California is a hundred percent new French oak on every drop of Chard, and that's a lot of oak to give the Chard, and it affects a very interesting style. I actually like that style on certain occasions, but in BC, what you'll often find is twenty or thirty percent new French oak, and then twenty or thirty percent previously used French. French oak. And the result of that, the fact the barrel is previously used is it imparts less flavor. And then maybe the other 30, 40, 50, 60% will be stainless steel tanks. And then the wine will be uh, put back together uh, to achieve uh, a very balanced, I think very balanced and very attractive style of wine. And uh, I quite like a lot of the Chard that's produced in BC. I spent an entire summer drinking every BC Chard I could to try and find the one I like the best. And on that note, I'll give a, a plug to Blue Mountain for their excellent Chardonnay, both at the entry level and the uh, reserve. Right, whereas with some Australian Chardonnays, it's uh, it's like you're you're having deciduous retsina. So um, anyway, I know we, we, we it's, it's good to get into the drinks. We, of course, want to pivot. And 
Um, there are all kinds of things that you've been up to in uh, your work, both professionally and personally, that uh, uh, we could get into. But there was some stuff you wanted to bring to the show, some ideas that uh, you thought we should be going over. Yeah, it's a topic that is, I think, starting to be broached in society because it's long overdue, but also it's tied into our current uh, uh, zeitgeist on discussing emotion and discussing different people's experience of emotion. And the, the topic that I want to get into was uh, men's experience of miscarriage and the polycarriage. Uh, I'll, I'll volunteer that my wife and I experienced uh, a miscarriage in 2016. And it was a, a very painful experience for myself. And for me, part of what I experienced that, that I, I want to bring out is that the men's experience of miscarriage is largely neutralized in social discourse, it, ignored, unattended, neutralized, secondary, less important. Uh, the, the men's experience of miscarriage is as a support to a woman uh, who, who has been seen to be the actual person who experienced the miscarriage, which in, in a, a physiological sense is true. Nothing was ejected from my body as part of the miscarriage. Um, but nonetheless, my personal experience of that was very, very painful. And it's something that I thought your listeners might be interested to, to think about and hear about and for a chance for you to, to think about uh, this issue and, and the associated politics thereof. Yeah, so I wanted to go into this fresh because uh, I've never publicly said that I had an experience like yours, but I in fact did in the fall and winter of 2013. Um, it, um, I, I would say that the relationship I was in at the time was in a way doomed by the emotional cost of the miscarriage and the way we as a family unit um, failed uh, to absorb the, that experience. So one of the reasons I've been not reading any of your notes about the show is because I didn't, I, I didn't want to be having that reaction in isolation uh, myself and come up with something glib to say. But obviously we've got to, we've got to immediately address the extremely large elephant here, which is the, the problem of collective pregnancy is a legal problem in America that if one comprehends pregnancy as being held by the social body that is the couple rather than the physical body that is the woman, um, there, are all there are all kinds of things that then condition, um, you know, real physical realities to people. You know, I grew up in the 80s hearing about, you know, pregnant Irish teenage girls being like, you know, hunted down on the Liverpool ferry so they couldn't get an abortion. And of course, present day America now has stories like that and the possibility of a federal statute to pursue such women across state lines. How do we, how do we sort of sever the social conversation? from the legal political conversation or is severing it even the right way to move forward? Yeah, I think you have to sever. 
And it's been an uncomfortable point for a long time. Like we are on the 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 left, right? Ideologically, um, I, I know there's the definition of what that means is in dispute. Um, the, as you like to point out, the word progressive means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. Uh, here in New Westminster Municipally, that's a right wing political party. Um, you know, then our good old progressive conservatives and so on. But we had a dis comfort on the left that if life does not begin at conception, then we shouldn't associate value with a pregnancy until it has come to full term and, and, and a baby is crying and kicking and screaming. That the issue of what value can you assign to a pregnancy if it's not life? And this uncomfortable issue around valuation, moral, legal, cultural valuation of a pregnancy, if you do indeed believe in a woman's right to choose and that life does not begin immediately conception, then you've got this uncomfortable point where you have to sort of say uh, uh, that there is no value. But that's not, not emotionally true. And our emotions matter, but they are not usually a determinant of legal outcome. Sometimes they can be. It's if a person sad. is afraid, that could be a relevant case situation in a stalking case, you know. But I, I think you're really onto something here because you're speaking to a larger issue than just miscarriage. When you say, when um, when you say that there there is just an inherent problem in the conflation of the emotional and the legal, that the collapse of those things into the same category, um, that's not just messing with our ability to grieve a miscarriage. Um, that's messing with our ability to do all kinds of things and have all kinds of conversations. Well, I, I often think about the role of a pastor in a prison. You know, they can do good work. I'm not a religious person, but mm -hmm. I don't doubt that a pastor in a prison can do good work and help somebody deal with trauma, can help them reconcile with a victim. That's valuable work. That's meaningful work. In fact, I think if you looked at the, the core of, of most faiths, you would find something about, about reconciliation, restitution, grieving, and, and all these sorts of experiences, forgiveness at, at the core. I mean, certainly Christianity for certain. But that doesn't mean that we love murder. Murder is wrong. I'm just going to put that on, on the show. <laughs> your, your, your audience can disagree if they want, but murder is ethically, morally wrong. But a pastor's work in healing a murderer, in creating restitution, in helping to heal victims, perpetrators, anybody is valuable. And there's an emotional and legal disconnect there. That person might never be released from prison but it doesn't mean that there isn't value in that person's children visiting them and having some restored emotional experiences. Um, and the, the experience of saying, well, legally, I support a woman's rights to choose, and I do. But it doesn't mean that a miscarriage wasn't an emotionally scarring experience for me, and it was. And so the politics of miscarriage are always tricky for both the right and the left. The right doesn't have it any easier because they get into the, the trap of, well, if, if um, you know, this is always going to be one way 
and the other, they get into traps themselves on that too. Well, one of the things that one sees, right, is a, a rhetorical topos that, that I'll use when dealing, you know, when, when debating abortion. It's like, well, um, how many miscarriages do you see tombstones for? Right. Now, um, and people on the right reacted in a predictable way. But I was challenged on that by a former partner of mine who had a late-term miscarriage and, in fact, against the law, stole the remains of the fetus in order to bury it so that it could have a marked grave. And the wow. day of its death is commemorated by this ex every wow. year. And so... I thought I had come up with a silver bullet argument and then a very pro-choice woman I deeply loved punched me in the face with a counter argument that I, I have yet to say anything really coherent in response to. But you don't have to because we can sever. We can Ooh. sever the legal implications and the emotional implications. You can grieve that a crime happened without being pro-crime. Right. You can be like, I'm so sorry that my father or child committed this crime that hurt you without giving up love for that person. Right. And that is a difficult severance to make. Right. But the same applies here. I am pro-choice and I grieve a miscarriage. That is not fundamentally wrong. It's an acknowledgement that our experiences are not governed by law. Right. Right that law is only one of the things that governs our experiences and in a very limited set of contexts. Yes, I often get into that debate when we talk about, you know, standards of proof for talking about um, accused sex offenders publicly, right? Sure. So yes, we all know that there's a big gulf between what goes on in court and what goes on in the public square. So let me ask a much let me turn around, come at this from the opposite end. Um, have you and your wife built any rituals, practices, um, built, built any stuff to uh, help manage both your individual grief over this and your shared grief and memory over this? Like, are there, are there if we construct this as a big intellectual problem, sure, it's a big intellectual problem, but what are... I mean, I spoke to some of my ex's social practices, the annual Facebook post, the visit to the marked grave, things like that. What has worked for you guys? So in terms of the experience, uh, I'll, I'll walk you through the timeline a little bit. My mother-in-law's, sorry, my, my wife's father-in-law was on his deathbed in December of 2015. And he was holding on and holding on and he held on till January and during that time, we received a positive pregnancy test. And we went and had it verified by the doctor, uh, my father-in-law, Duncan. Um, he, he was losing the ability to speak. And so, you know, you're supposed to wait three months before you tell people, but damn it, there are ex you know, ex uh, special circumstances that... Um, we, and we didn't have privacy. My mother-in-law was there, my brother-in-law. Um, and so we made sure that Duncan knew and we, we told him the news and he had stopped speaking, but he was still reacting with facial expressions and, and eye contact. And he lit up on the news. He, you know, the 
you know, his, his daughter is expecting. This was good news. That was the last time he communicated. That was the very last time he ever communicated through facial expression or body language. For three more days, he was silent. The medication went up. I mean, he was on the most powerful painkillers, sedatives that the medical world has. He stopped as best we could tell, he wasn't hearing or understanding. He was just snowed out with, with powerful medical sedatives um, at home to die. And so for three days, he didn't communicate, and then he died. And that was sad, of course. Um, and we were expecting. And then we went for the first ultrasound, I think, on February 10th of that year. And I wasn't allowed into the room at that particular clinic into the ultrasound room until after the process was done. So after it was done, um, I came in and we were given the expectation that um, this was not a viable pregnancy. Um, there was no pulse, there was no growth, that there was no possibility that this would result in a crying, screaming, kicking baby. And that we should expect in the coming days for a miscarriage to occur. And so we left the um, ultrasound clinic and we didn't make it to the car. We burst into tears. We, we embraced, we sobbed uncontrollably. People were walking by. They, they, they must have had no clue what could be so terrible that we were just overcome. You know, we, we were like uh, an A shape, you know, leaning against each other, holding hands. And if not for the other would collapse. You know, um, and after what seemed like a very long time, probably it was more like half an hour, we started to call our parents because we thought it'd be easier for us to tell them on the phone than in person. And of course, the secret was out because we told Duncan with witnesses. So people had known we were expecting. And I don't think we would have been as public if those circumstances hadn't been in place. But um we had a few days of waiting for the worst. And on February 14th, my wife got cramps and we went to Langley Memorial Hospital and we were in the emergency room and we let them know why we were there. And while we were waiting, my, my, my wife felt the need to go to the washroom and she miscarried. And she came out and told me what had happened and we waited in the emergency room. We told them what had happened and a doctor inspected her. We had um, uh, an, another ultrasound to make sure that it was a complete miscarriage because it's actually lethal to have an incomplete miscarriage. It, it can be cause sepsis and then fatality. So it was a complete miscarriage. There was no scarring, no injury. Um, we were told there'd be no problem having another a pregnancy in all likelihood. And we bereft and so instead of going from instead of the the juxtaposition of death and life we had death and death and this was very painful and dark and our entire family was impacted because they knew and my mother-in-law thought you know she lost her husband but she was going to have a grandchild but this this was the cycle of life that she got to experience in a positive way and instead of the cycle it was a dead end and we were very sad. And then an opportunity came at work. 
I was then teaching at the University of the Fraser Valley, which has a campus in Chandigarh, India. And they put out a call, is anybody interested in teaching courses at, in Chandigarh for a semester? And I said to my wife, you know, maybe, maybe it would be good for us to get away, to leave the country for four, five, six months and get away. And so my courses were being taught over there. I put in my expression of interest. We applied for visas. We got the paperwork done. The plane tickets were purchased. We, oh, it was several months later. The, the semester started in September. Uh, we flew there in August. Uh, we did a little bit of tourism in Delhi. Then we went to Chandigarh and we taught for a semester. We traveled around India. We went to Maldives. We came back after uh, four and a half months. And by that time, it was almost a full year since the miscarriage. And that was what we needed to reset. And we still were not ready to quote unquote, try again. And for the record, I hate the expression trying. I hated it before we had the miscarriage. I hated it even more after. Anytime somebody would ask me, are you trying? I would deflect. I think after miscarriage, somebody said, well, were you trying? As if this made it better or worse. And I said, well, we pulled the goalie because I'm Canadian and that's the metaphor we use, sports metaphors, we pulled the goalie. And the fact of the matter is we wanted a family. We met, we fell in love. The trajectory was fully Republican. Nice man meets nice woman, date for a while, get engaged, get married, buy a home, have a baby, you know, nice job in the suburbs. We, we met the Republican utopia of the 1950s, except for the miscarriage, which I'm sure a billion Republican families had and never talked about. When I started, oh, sorry, uh, I was going to say, when I started talking about the fact that we'd had a miscarriage, the number of people who told me they'd had a miscarriage and who told me that I was the first person they'd ever told was quite impressive. And so we needed that basically year to, to grieve. And then we didn't start trying again for um for almost another year after that i think it's i mean you've made so many really important observations here about the need for the reset the way that this is a form of closeted grief that you get to grieve with your partner but you don't get to socially grieve um that's that's interesting right you just see people standing around looking sad and then somebody goes oh they had a miscarriage but it's in a whisper right they had a miscarriage it's in a whisper and so, um, but I was also struck by when you were talking about that whole cycle of life myth and having the family, one of the things that certainly happened in my case was that the mere existence of this potential future person, as that potential future person got more real, it restructured our narration of who our, the family had been as well as who it was going to be. This sense that um, somehow the relationship I was in was anointed, was inevitable, was the correct way my urban tribe had configured itself, that we had misconfigured ourselves before, but somehow the pregnancy was evidence that certain things were meant to be or meant to happen. And so right away, really before, you know, before this um, 
This creature has, you know, uh, 200 cells to rub together. Um, it's already reconfiguring your theory of who you are now, who you're going to be and who you were in the past and not just you, but the people in the family unit that will end up relating to this potential life. And so I realized like I had never hung so many. I'm very, I mean, you know, I, I've done fringe politics all my life. You don't hang a lot on anticipated future outcomes. You don't hang your hopes on those things because every shot you're playing is a long shot. So I hadn't expected myself to do that emotionally. I thought I had inoculated myself against hanging too much hope or too much meaning on a thing that hadn't finished happening yet. And Same. I was stunned. Yeah. Yeah. Stunned by um, how quickly I made my emotional well-being dependent. Uh, now, I have had... I've had, uh, uh, my friends have had a range of um, responses to miscarriages and terms of how the miscarriage, how and whether the miscarriage is ever related to the successful pregnancies, the children that the, the relationship does produce. So uh, one friend of mine, um, you know, all of his daughters are named after the original lost pregnancy. Uh, another, you know, um, conscripts her kids into the annual grieving process for the lost pregnancy. On the other hand, some of my friends um, don't want to clutter their children's thinking with that at all. And even if they don't favor closeted miscarriage grief in the public square, they favor it around uh, the fire or in the living room with their kids, that they don't want their kids to carry the grief or burden of that. And there are ways they can ration information to prevent that. Now, your kids are very young, right? You guys have still got time to come up with your strategy for how and whether to tell this story um, to, um, you know, the brothers and sisters of the child that was not. Um, where's your thinking going on that right now? I'm sure eventually they will know. But right now they're, they're three and three quarters and 10 months old. Um, the... The conversation, we have some meaningful conversations. My, my three-year-old knows about Opa Duncan, who died. We have talked about that, that, you know, he died, that that can happen to a person. He knows that that can happen. But that's that preliminary knowledge is, is very preliminary, right? We have not had the miscarriage conversation. And in part because there is no memory of the person who would have been. Um, and we, you know, that was actually another painful question somebody asked me shortly after the miscarriage is, did you, did you name the baby? And actually that, of all the questions people asked, that one was a, a dagger to my gut. I, I bled emotionally when I was asked that question. And the answer is no, we didn't. But there was a name I had in mind that I have, we did not use when naming our children. Um, I just couldn't go back to that, to considering that name. Um, 
And I don't know if that would have been the name, but I had it in mind and we didn't go back. Um, and the, the conversation with my children about, well, there's no name to, you know, it wasn't a brother or a sister, right? They didn't, they, they have, my son has a sister. My, my daughter has a brother, unless they have different identities they want to subscribe to later. And we can change the, the words when, if they need to be changed. Um, but the fact of the matter is that they don't have another person they can think about or relate to. And it's going to be a long time before they would ever need to. I imagine probably sometime around when my son is 9, 10, 11, this will probably come into conversation at some point. Or if my, my, one of my children ever asks me, you know, Daddy, what is a miscarriage? What does that mean? You know, that could come up. I mean, we have family members who may soon be entering into decision-making about having children. And if they are open enough about a miscarriage, should they experience that? As many, many people do. Um, I'm led to believe that of women who are pregnant for the first time, up to 40% of those pregnancies end in miscarriage. Um, and so if they are open about that, and, and my son, maybe now five, six, seven years old, says to me, well, daddy, what does it mean that auntie had a miscarriage? Well, then I guess I will need to have that conversation. And you don't always get to pick the times you have conversations with your children. I, I wasn't planning on explaining a lot of things I have explained to my son, <laughs> but um, I have, and I've done it to the best of my ability, matched to his vocabulary and, and maturity and readiness. But we've talked about, you know, Opa Duncan died because, well, Opa, so you want to talk about May, December romances. Um, my father-in-law, uh, was 24 years older than my mother-in-law. So he passed away at 90, um, six years ago. And, um, well, my mother-in-law is in her early seventies. So, um, you know, it's, it's a bit of a gap. It was anticipated. You always know when you're in that kind of marriage that there's a high likelihood of, of a long widowership or widowship. Um, so, I don't know what I'm going to say, but I know it'll be the right thing for him when I get there. Right. So, um, uh, well, while we're we're by no means done with the the miscarriage theme, um, you have uh, you have hit upon um, uh, something that's becoming more relevant to me recently. Um, you um, you did a bunch of your recovering from this in India, and of course. You know, British Columbia is an important place in the Indian diaspora, more so even than the number of our of our neighbors who are whose families are from the Indian subcontinent. Obviously, you know, Surrey is to Khalistan as Boston was to Ulster. There's um, right. There's an independence struggle of a particular group of Indians that's embedded in our history here. And. You know, certainly working at UFV, I imagine a little less so at Douglas, but I imagine not that much less so. A lot of your students, right, are um, come out of um, uh, come out of uh, family systems that originated in the Indian subcontinent, and these family systems, um, like 
they don't break down in the diaspora. People don't just turn into nuclear families in a single generation, right? There's there's a persistence. And in fact, in some ways, living in a diasporic community strengthens your family connections more than living in India would. That the reciprocity within the family becomes more necessary because you're in the cultural context of a you know white neoliberal settler society here in Anglo-America. And so I, uh, I wondered, and, and of course, you know, Although, um, you know, we, I, think, I think we've managed to corrode uh, Jewish family systems down a little more effectively than uh, we have, but maybe we've just had more time and put more expertise into it. You know, you obviously, you don't just come from a secular progressive white tradition. You also come out of a, of a deep uh, Jewish tradition. And I wondered, looking around at other societies, other traditions, there's a thing that we often don't do. We're so convinced that the past is a benighted place or that places that are not here are benighted places that we don't ask, are there people who handled this better than us? Are there people at another place or another time who thought more intelligently about loss during pregnancy or had better systems of support, whether those people are distant from us in space or time are there models that, that you think we can look to for, um, for, for better ideas about that? I feel such ignorance to the question, Stuart. Such well, ignorance. Well, that's interesting, isn't it? Because I think that's part of what keeps us closeted and isolated. We, uh, there are so many questions we don't ask, right? I, when I was in India, we never mentioned the miscarriage. And I'm going to correct you a little bit. We did not finish our grieving in India. I am still grieving the miscarriage. No, I understand. You will be until you um, die. I get I, that. Maybe. Um, I, I, I'm not going to put a... If you haven't stopped uh, now, I don't think you're going to. Uh, most, of the, most of the deaths we grieve, we grieve till we die. That's interesting. Anyways, um, but in India, we did not use the word miscarriage at all. We didn't mention it. But there was an interesting interaction where my wife was having a conversation with somebody and she talked about going to her parents' house and she corrected herself because her father had recently died. She, I mean, I should say my mother's house. And the person she was speaking to, the look of judgment that came over the face because the assumption in that person's head was that they were divorced, that this was something that she should be judged for. She saw the look, she said, well, my father passed away, the judgment subsided, right? My father passed away earlier this year, the judgment subsided quickly, but that suspicion that you're from one of these frivolous families who has the willy-nilly to dare to divorce was a palpable reaction. So even, you know, the, the react, and that's a very small sample, admittedly, it's one experience. I don't want to, to, to say that, that represents the entire Indian subcontinent, but that that, that experience really was was emblematic for us of how careful we need to be around certain topics. And we did not talk about it at all. And we did not hear anybody ever mention miscarriage. Not only that, when we were in India, I mean, homosexuality was still criminal. It has only since been decriminalized. Prostitution was invisible in India. If you went out in a night, you never saw somebody who was obviously working the street in a busy area. It, it was 
a complete, or maybe we just didn't go to the right neighborhoods. But or it, you it saw didn't see the same the, signs. Maybe that's also uh, possible. right because um, because in, in more traditional societies, solitary public women are axiomatically prostitutes. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's um, also I um, have seen photos of of what I I've seen photos of what I didn't see in India. I'll put it that way, and it seems to me that I think I would have been able to see right. the connection. I mean, they they weren't. Uh, uh, white uh, boots up to the knee, but um, um, you know, four inch heels or anything like that. But the photos I saw after the fact, I thought I would have recognized that if I had seen that. Uh, I'm reminded as a little side note, first time I went to France, I was in Bordeaux, um, which was before my wine journey. Uh, but I, I had a little taste of a wine festival when I was there. And I walked just off the main street around this town square. And I saw this group of women, mostly in their 30s and 40s, some in their 50s, sitting on those canvas director's chairs that Hollywood is famous for. And they're all sitting there reading books across from storefront businesses on the other side of the street, the town square behind them. And I just walked by down the street. There was no traffic. I didn't bother with the sidewalk, um, cobblestone street. And as I passed, they each looked up and smiled at me nicely very polite I thought, oh this is very nice these women work at the businesses it's lunch hour they're having their lunch reading their books outside how lovely and then when i had passed about 15 or 20 of these women i sort of stood paused my footsteps and i thought oh my goodness they do not run the businesses downstairs they run the businesses upstairs that have residential style housing attached to them and i turned back and looked and they all smiled nicely and i thought well this is very different from uh, the corner of of Richards and Smythe or wherever it was in downtown Vancouver that used to be infamous. I, I remember coming yeah, home from I lived at Richards and Smythe. Yeah. And so there, there were the two bars and there was, there was the bar that the, the locals went to that I went to. And then there was the other bar that only the prostitutes and the cops went to. Um, <laughs> but what I was, what I was going to say um, was um, I was talking with a friend who was part of the original when, when Davy Street was the stroll, mm. um, uh, a friend of mine was running a uh, was running a brothel there in the early nineteen seventies, and um, and he talked about exactly the kind of thing you're talking about. That was how they did it on Davy when Davy started out. It's only the mobile um, peripatetic prostitution that happens after the police have cracked down. Uh, but the original Davy model was the French municipal space model. This person is stationary, they're comfortable, and they're directing you to the business that's one story up. Yeah. Um, you might They might escort you into that business and send someone else down, or they might just direct you up, depending upon your needs. But what I, I wanted to say before we... We uh, we we entirely depart miscarriages uh, yeah, <laughs> into sex work. No, no, this is good. This is how the show works. It's, we go where we go. Um, I do think you were saying something quite Im- important. I, I um, in that um, just making an observation from what we're doing right now. Look at how we're in some ways less inhibited, even though we're recording this. We're less inhibited and more open because we're doing this grieving in a um, in 
a male space. There are no women here to grieve with us or watch us grieve. And my understanding is that in more traditional societies, this is how miscarriages are grieved. That yes, the couple grieves together, but if they make that grieving project bigger, then the project bifurcates and the woman grieves with her female friends, the man grieves with his male friends. And of course, there are radically gendered differences in the style of grieving, right? Whether you're grieving by shouting with cigars after dinner or weeping with cigars after dinner, or whether you know, you're, um, or whether you're grieving as you make tortillas for 16 hours. There are, you know, very, there are these different ways, but I do think, I want to suggest that some of what I was talking about to do with the, whose pregnancy is this really? It is bigger than just a legal construct. And I think that it's easier for women to grieve a miscarriage if, their female friends and associates don't have to be pulled into comforting the emotions of the male partner because right a crying man will always take all the energy that all the crying women in the room would do like men talk a lot about how women use tears to get things done but if as a social event, right, a man bursting into tears will always reconfigure a room based on his needs. And a woman cannot rely on that because we're constantly told women are gonna do that. And so we come prepared to not let them. Um, similarly, I think with men grieving a miscarriage together, good men would feel really shitty withholding comfort from the woman in the room to give it to their male friend. Right. Because she did carry more of the burden in the end uh, in every way, physically, emotionally, etc. And so I think it, there are certain kinds of grief that I think really belong in sex segregated space. I think re our recent obsession with the annihilation of sex segregated space has actually in some ways produced a renaissance intellectually, particularly in, in sociological thought about what sex segregated spaces are for and what they do well. And I think if those spaces weren't as under attack as they are in this society, we wouldn't be thinking as deeply or as clearly about some things that do work better um, in these homosocial environments. So I wondered, uh, you know, and I, and I, I mean, this is not a theory I had before this call because the call itself is my is a bunch of my evidence for it. And so I wondered, have you in dealing with um, have either you or your wife had that experience where um, you know you've talked about this away from each other in a in a different kind of space? I'm really interested in what you've just said. And th there are a couple points. Don't let me lose track of, of all the interesting points. My wife afterwards wanted to find some sort of support group that she could go to, but it kind of, what she wanted didn't really exist. And sometimes she would bear her soul to some of her friends and her friends would just say, well, you can try again. They, she didn't get the comfort she wanted from all the right places. We, we were so 
by, by such a long shot, the most important people in each other's support network, right? We, we were we were so unified in our grief. And, and it was an interesting problem we had is how can you grieve so much and still give to the other person to support them in their grief? And this was a, a mammoth problem. We, we basically needed a year abroad. It was four and a half months in India, but we actually traveled a lot in other parts of the year. So, but it was a year of distraction, let's call it a year of distraction, followed by another year of, of norm setting before we were ready to contemplate this question again. And I did share this news with, with some men I know, and only one did I feel came close to the level of, of support or camaraderie that, that could have been meaningfully helpful to my grieving. Um, and I, I shared a photo with you before this interview, and it's a photo of Hello Canada's front page from volume 743, issue four, from 14th of December, 2020. It's a picture of Megan Merkel, and the headline is Megan's Bravery. And the Sussex's private pain. Well, it's so private, it's on the headline of a magazine. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, Megan's bravery as she speaks openly of her loss to help other women. And I remember thinking, not in a million years would there be a picture of Prince Harry saying Harry's bravery as he speaks openly to help of his loss to help other men. And you know what? Maybe he should have, and maybe the magazine should have, because you know what? Men don't talk about this, and we need to. It is unhealthy, the level of silence men have to endure about this emotional topic. Men are trained to suppress emotions. We are culturally trained, and with necessity, the men who don't learn how to suppress emotions, they're the ones in jail for assault, right? We, by necessity, learn how to suppress emotions. And this gets lumped in, and it doesn't need to be lumped in. And I would very, like, I value the interaction you and I are having. I didn't know you had this experience. I'm glad you didn't share it with me until today. Because it heightens the meaning of this interaction and the value of this interaction. And I also tie this back for your political appreciation to McCarthyism. Because during McCarthyism, homosexuality was a scourge that had to be eradicated. And men had to hide affection for men, lest you be in, uh, a homosexual and need to be driven out of government, out of business, out of industry, out of academia for loving another man. And so for really the next, let's call it, because it hasn't worn out yet men were not to show affection publicly to men unless they were gay, which we now say, Oh, you know, all the more power to you. You know, I, I'm, I'm gay pride. I'm in favor of, you know, equal rights, all this. That's okay. But a straight man, I remember the last time I publicly hugged a straight man in public in an act of grieving. And it was the night Jack Layton died. A friend of mine was at the candlelit vigil and we, we, we just looked at each other and it, we said it was a night for man hugs. And that's the last time I can remember that kind of men being like, it's okay for men to be vulnerable now. We are hugging men. This is not in any way a homosexual action. And I remember going through high school and anybody who was gay in high school 
they knew well to hide it. They knew damn well enough to hide it. And if they couldn't hide it, they found people they could be safe with. And, um, you know, I, so I think part of this is still outfall of McCarthyism. I, I, I mean, I think McCarthyism is part of a package. There is a thing that happened in the 1950s called the crisis of masculinity um, that McCarthyism was, was but one dimension of. Um, and yeah, it was a very fear-driven culture. I think that masculinity, um, I mean, the power of masculinity in here's, and this is, I mean, eternal debt for Anne, to Anne Rubenstein, and she represents to me the best of old school, how academia used to be. Because fundamentally, I think a lot of the really clever things that Anne Rubenstein said to contradict me were, partly motivated by how fucking annoying she found me. And so, you know, something like that, that interpersonal annoyance that, that used to motivate better scholarship and better thinking. And I remember I had made some comment about something in Mexico. That we, and I said, well, this is set in the 1950s. The U.S. and Mexico are not siloed environments. And at this time, the United States is going through something called the crisis of masculinity. And Anne said, uh, that's the power of masculinity. It's always in crisis. And that was like a savage burn on both all men and me personally. Uh, and an utterly deserved one. I think that that's why, as part of like how patriarchy maintains its hegemony is because masculinity is unstable and is constantly destroying and recreating itself in a new form that it's actually hard for there to be, I mean, one of the reasons patriarchies come out so often in society is patriarchies are better than other male supremacist societies at having some level of social memory or tradition. Um, most other male supremacist societies, you know, it's like you're in a Mesoamerican blood cult. You're gonna destroy all the records every calendar round and recreate the world from scratch. And so I think that I would say that even if we go past McCarthyism, it's almost that homosocial male culture has trouble holding on to knowledge of itself. Um, and those troubles are being increased by capitalism. But it's probably a pre-existing bug that goes back, uh, you know, six to nine thousand years that we we remember as few things as we can get away with about all the situations you're going to get into as a man, what you can do about them and how your friends can help you. Um, we're always tearing up that information. And it's really hard even to figure out, like, what kind of bottle you could put that message in so that it will survive long enough for other men to read it. And so I think that's, yeah. So I guess one of the other things we have to think about is you're talking about, you know, the church and the way that it works in prisons and how there's a, there's like a, there's a cultural persistence to certain practices of soothing or healing or helping really, really fucked up dudes. And it seems like, I mean, I think this is one of the central problems of secularization, 
was that we forgot all the useful information our religions contained while we were throwing out all of the crazy non-information they contained. So where do we as sec like thinking about this as a socio-political problem, which is how you and I have framed most problems, looking ahead, what should be around for men to help them process this kind of loss? My God, we need role models, Stuart. We need role models. You know, um, I, every day, every day, I tell my son I love him. Every day I hug him, I kiss the top of his head. I touch in ways my parents did not touch, hugging and kissing. My parents didn't do that. I, um, I wasn't told I was loved until I was 12 years old. And that is a pattern I am breaking. I'm a role model for my son. I know it by default. A father's a role model. Yeah, you have no choice whether you're a good one or a bad one. You you are a role model the moment you are that guy. Well, I am choosing to be a role model who communicates emotion and demonstrates that physically through hugs and kisses on the top of the head. I sing to my son. My father, and I love him dearly, and he loves me dearly. But this was not the relationship we had in, in, in that context and i know that by doing this my son will be a better role model if he ever chooses to be a parent or what i think a role model should do and should be and i believe that if people want to repair this then they should role model it and if our conversation today helps one of your listeners have a conversation that helps their grieving because they are a man who experienced miscarriage and never told a soul then our work here has been valuable today and we are useful role models but where is that magazine headline where prince harry's bravery helps us talk openly about our experiences because it's great that megan's a role model for women out there. I would love if there was a man out there. And actually, I gotta give some props to John Legend right now. John Legend, who just entered the public sphere for saying that in fact their marriage did not have a miscarriage. Their marriage had an abortion. It was a medically necessary abortion in their relationship. Um, that was in the news recently that he brought that out. Um, and I respect that. It's a slightly different topic but it was very timely in the American context, but somebody somewhere needs to start talking about this so that other men can say, you know what, Joe Biden experienced this. You know what, uh, uh, the Obamas experienced this and well, that it's okay to grieve with men. I think you, you make, some important, you make some, some important points, some of which I, I fully agree with, some of which I'm only in partial accord. So, um, I'm a lot more skeptical of role model discourse because I was raised in a black family and that freights a whole bunch of stuff that it doesn't for someone from your background. Um, in many ways, what role model, Bell Hooks wrote a superb piece about how what a role model for the black community really is, is like a projectile we launch at white people 
somebody who's really scary, really successful, some kind of junkyard dog that we want to put out there as our vanguard. Because in the one way, they're like modeling success in the community, but their real function is to direct their their predation and their competitive nature outwards at people the community needs to be protected from. So we have there. And similarly, uh, Reagan, of course, reframed affirmative action and created opposition to it by using a kind of role model discourse. So it's a term I'm very frightened of. But also, I mean, modeling things is good. I recognize I'm just bringing baggage here, but also one of the things that helps men approve of themselves is like men, I mean, Canadian men have taken it way too far, but men do like games of continents. They do like games. We do like games where part of the object of the game isn't, is not screaming or not, or not, you know, or taking the pain, right? And there are ways in which, um, you know, men don't have to break all the way out of stoicism. They're, they don't have to display their emotions as though they're falling into like a normative female gendered role. There are ways of performing stoicism where you still get support and people still say the right thing to you. So I, I'm, I'm more inclined to find things within current male gendered behaviors than I am to seek out things that are wholly outside of our gendered behaviors, just based on you know how things have shaken down for me. But the other thing I wanted to put out there is a much more simple one, right? Um, you're, um, I'm more of an institutionalist politically than you, right? I, I'm, you're not from the Gramskians faction of the NDP. I'm from the Gramskian faction of the NDP. If we were to go back to like the 70s or the mid 20th century, when Winch and Barrett and Williams and, and uh, Strachan are fighting it out, most of our political disagreements are that you're a conventional so, uh, Rosa Lump, uh, Luxembourg social democrat, and I'm, um, you know, Strachan, Williams, Gramskian guy who's an institutionalist, right? Even when all the criminal charges were raining down on Dave Stupich, I begged the NDP not to cut, not to shut down the other Commonwealth holding societies it controlled. So. One of my responses is, you know what, um, I went through some stuff nearly a decade ago. There was an organization called BC Male Survivors of Sexual Abuse, and it was a nonprofit peer support, peer counseling group. And I want to put out there that, you know, God knows when either of us is going to have any time on our hands. But I think there is an institutionalist response mm -hmm. here. Wouldn't it be cool if when a doctor in this city had to see a couple about a miscarriage, um, he could hand the guy a card going, if you're having trouble and your male friends are not like able to do this for you, here are some men you can call. And I don't think that would be that hard a thing to build because like the organization that helped me 10 years ago, my guess is that's pretty close to a perpetual motion machine. 
that however many people that thing burns out, it's going to find more than enough people to replace the people it burns out. Yeah, no, I, that's what my wife was basically looking for, right? And she didn't quite find what she wanted. I did not seek that out. I almost never seek the comfort of strangers. Almost never. On the rare occasion, in a bar in Calais, have I sought out the comfort of a stranger? Um, and, well, honestly, that bar in Calais, I wasn't actually upset. I was just lonely. Um, but um, somebody somewhere could be helped by that. And I, I do agree that there is an, an institutional opportunity. I'm not taking it on, Stuart. Um, but, We've all got enough on our plates. But, uh, yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm also going to say, I should, though... I should list a... out all the things I do for you. <laughs> <laughs> I wrote a book this summer, Stuart. I'm on the board uh, of a nonprofit. I'm chairing a department. I'm teaching classes. I got two young kids. I'm keeping a marriage healthy. I cook all the meals. Oh, Stuart, I'm... Yeah, I'm I know. You, you, you're doing, and you're doing a lot of the child care. And, uh, yeah, and, I, uh, and we should have you back to talk about the book. But what I will say It's not is, an interesting book. Don't bring me back. Uh, it's okay. a boring book. Okay. <laughs> um, but what I, what I will say is, um, once I let people in my friend circle know that I um, uh, had been helped by this organization, a person I would never have guessed had also been helped by the organization, revealed to me that he was one of its founders and major donors. And, um, you know... If you, um, yeah, and, and uh, this person, um, so that, that's one of the ironies, right, of um, when you're part of a weird organization and then you discover who's already in it. Um, I've had a lot of that in uh, my politics. And when I moved into this, the same thing happened. And I guess, I mean, I guess that that's really the thought we should leave on, which is, here is an incredibly common experience that people are not dealing with. And community is probably just a stone's throw away. It's just, uh, you know, an emotion, one emotional risk away of bringing something up in a conversation. Yeah, no, you're, you're right. And I will also say when I shared my experience, most of the people who engaged me were women. Overwhelmingly were women who wanted to talk to me about it. Um, and I, I did not find, I, I, one, one man who I care about very much, uh, engaged me meaningfully and that was meaningful to me, but, um, I think we're still dealing with, um, with a lot of repressed emotion and I don't quite understand what causes people to not want to talk about it. Other than that, I, some people feel shame of a miscarriage. I don't understand what there is to be ashamed about. I, I can't connect with that intellectually or emotionally, but you know, if, if, if you know, for some men, they, they, they don't feel comfortable talking about it. They might desperately want to or need to, but um, it's, it's hard to connect. So I'll push back on role modeling. Maybe if yeah, yeah. they saw more people doing it, they would open up more. No, I do think that's that's true. If that if that modeling gets out there into the public square, it absolutely changes people's behavior. And uh, yeah, I think they're 
there's definitely a role to be played in the public square and uh you know uh, per, uh but uh i think i'll have to leave it here we've been in this for a little over an hour i try and keep these things uh to around an hour but i really appreciate you bringing this to the show um it was a great plan to come in with and uh like you i i hope that that we've helped one or two people we don't know i hope so Stuart, thanks so much for inviting me. Thanks, Sam. This has been another episode of Cocktail Hour with Stuart Parker. If you're interested in following my other work, please check out my blog at stuartparker.ca or my institute, Los Altos, at losaltos.ca. Los Altos also maintains an audio archive of the courses we have taught here on Anchor. Finally, if you're interested in supporting the work that I'm doing here, consider visiting my page on Patreon and making a monthly contribution to support independent critical thought.